take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Excited to continue this series of messages, and we'll talk about the series that we're in in just a moment. But I want to start today telling you about somebody that um, lived a Christian life and did a lot of great things for the Lord a few hundred years ago, so most of us in this room haven't heard of him. His name is Thomas Fuller. I actually have a drawing of him, not a portrait of him, like a picture, because they didn't have those things back then. But this is a drawing of Thomas Fuller. He was an English church leader and historian. He was one of the first people in England that was able to make a living as an author, completely off of his writing. Now, that was because of the sales of his books that he would write, but also because of um, just patrons that would support him, that would give him money in order for him to write. And he wrote a lot of different books. One of the things he wrote, one of the interesting things he did, was he did a map uh, of the Holy Land, maps of the biblical lands of the Holy Land, hand-drawn, with notes about them and words and descriptions about certain battles or events or things that took place in them. And it was treasured in England because of its ability to bring to life the Holy Land. And in the midst of that drawings and notes that he had, he wrote a phrase that we're not real sure originated with him, but we know that we can't trace it back farther than him Yet, And so the first knowledge of this particular phrase is in this book that is by Thomas Fuller about the Holy Land maps. And this is what he wrote. It is always darkest just before the dawn. It's always darkest just before the dawn. Now, scientifically speaking, I don't think that's actually true. All right. But you understand what is intended there is that it seems like that we are at our lowest point right before the good news arrives. This is the plot device of almost every action movie that exists today. That there is a place where they get to the absolute worst and they now compete to see how far they can take you down that train of thinking there is no way anything good can come from this. And then a hero shows up or a surprise happens or it all turns around and suddenly the dawn arrives. Today we're going to continue our series called Great Joy looking at the hymns, the songs, the carols, if you will, that were sung by the people surrounding the first Christmas. Last week we looked at Mary and her song of praise called the Magnificat. Today we're going to look at another character surrounding the birth of Christ and what they have to sing about what is coming. And the reason I thought about that particular quote, the the darkest hour is always right before the dawn, is because... At the end of this song, we're going to go to the end of the song, and then we'll go back and talk about the background and get into the full song. At the end of this song, the writer, the one saying it in the Bible, in Luke, says in Luke 1, 78 through 79, basically that the dawn will arrive. And so in Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79, it says, Because of our God's merciful compassion, The dawn from on high will visit us 
to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Now what's going to happen is that dawn is going to happen when it seems darkest, when it seems like it can't happen, that dawn is coming and that this announcement that has come to him will provide it. Just to let you know what's happening before we get into the song, we're talking about a particular couple in Scripture that we all have heard of if you've grown up in church, but we don't think a whole lot about. This is happening after 400 years of silence, 400 years when God had not spoken through a prophet to the people of God. Over 400 years since the book of Malachi, it was written, or the prophet Malachi prophesied and hits was written down. And we have this couple that is a strange couple to introduce as the first people we meet in a story about Jesus. Because it's not Jesus. It's not even, as we begin the introduction, Jesus' mom or earthly father. It's not anyone surrounding that other than a little bit of a distant relative. And we're told the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. I'll just give you a little background on the two of them. Zechariah was an ordinary country priest. Then the country of Israel at that time, in the area of Judea at that time, there were around 8,000 men like Zechariah. And they would get certain days that they would be allowed to go and serve at the temple. In fact, they were given two weeks, one week at a time throughout the entire year that they went and served at the temple. So their priestly duties were actually only fulfilled two weeks out of the year. And Zechariah is one of these 8,000 that will go. During that two weeks, they would serve around the temple, and every morning, someone would get up and draw lots. They would take turns kind of choosing, randomly, if you will, guided by the Lord, they felt, about who was to serve in particular places in those days. It was almost like a priest draft every time they went. And there were certain positions that you got to do a lot of times, certain positions that you got to do sometimes, and some positions that were once-in-a-lifetime kind of things. Just so you know, by the way, Zechariah's name is interesting because of the story we're going to be reminded of today that says his name literally means the Lord remembered. His wife is Elizabeth. It's one of the most popular names we see in Scripture, particularly for Levites, people that were married to priests. And her name points to a promise-keeping God. And so you have Zechariah, a priest, his wife, Elizabeth, who's also from a priestly line, who are married together. And it tells us in Scripture that they were upright and good and everything about them was right. There was only one issue in their lives, and that is that they did not have children. They were barren, or Elizabeth was. No children. And in any society, infertility can be an aching disappointment. It can be a moment of shame or a, something that carries with a couple or a family for years. Many of you in our church know the story that Susan and I have that we were told early on in our marriage that we would never be able to have children on our own. Now, we have obviously been blessed by the Lord in the midst of that, and he has miraculously given us four beautiful children. 
But we lived for a period of time, a significant period of time, with this aching question of whether that was ever going to be the case. And we understand in some ways, at least for three, four, five years, the ache that can come from infertility. But the ache in our society for infertility is nothing compared to what it was in Hebrew society. It would have been considered a disgrace. A dishonor. God's punishment had come upon this family according to their community. In fact, even though Zechariah served faithfully in the temple and there was nothing that they could find wrong with Zechariah and Elizabeth, the whispers around town would have been that they were not upright people, but that something was wrong with them because they did not yet have children. And it tells us in this story, not only did they not have children yet, it says that they were well along in years. Y'all know what the, the, the word for well along in years is? You said old. I didn't say old, but that's what they said, right? Somebody else. It's old, okay? Now, we don't know exactly how old, but the understanding is too old to have kids. That that ship has sailed. So that's the setting. Zechariah. The Lord remembered. Elizabeth. A promise-keeping God. Barren. You know that the couple had cried out for years for children. You know they had prayed that God would bless them. In fact, my assumption from reading and studying this passage is that they were so well along in years at this point down that trail that perhaps Elizabeth was still holding out hope, but Zechariah had given up hope and his prayers had shifted to the nation of Israel and not his own personal life. Scripture then tells us that on one occasion when Zechariah was at the temple and they were doing the daily draft for priest duties, his name got drawn to offer incense inside the holy place of the temple of God. Literally, that was a a once-in-a-lifetime appointment. Once that happened for you, you could never do it again. It was the apex of his life. He was going to go and stand in the holy place. He, for the nation of Israel, was going to offer prayers to the Lord and then light the incense as a symbol of the prayers of the people of Israel rising to their Lord. He was representing his entire nation. And Scripture says as he walked in and he began to offer that prayer, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared beside him. On the right side of where he was offering the incense, the angel appeared. And his first response, you may want to guess the first response? Frightened out of his mind. As would you be. Amen? Are y'all with me this morning? Would you? Amen? All right. Frightened out of his mind. He says, what's going on? I don't understand all this stuff's going. And the angel says, you're going to have a child. And you're going to name him John. By the way, John means God has been gracious. 
This child that you're going to have is going to be a blessing to you and to your household. And he is going to be set apart from the beginning of his life for a special task, for a special purpose. And that he will be the one that will be the forerunner of the Messiah. That I am speaking again. The first words that God is speaking to his nation happens in the holy place to Zechariah by this angel saying, I'm coming. I'm bringing the Messiah. It's all happening. 400 years of silence, 400 years of darkness. Here it is. You are going to be the bearer of a son who will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And Zechariah says, nope. That can't happen, God. I'm too old. Now here's what I love about that particular response. Zechariah was a priest. He had to know the stories of the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament, there are multiple times when God does the unexpected. And one of the ways he especially works is in the lives of people who don't think they can have children. Abraham and Sarah were well along in years. Amen? 199, that's kind of well along in years. Hannah with Samuel cried out to the Lord story of Rachel and Leah and the barrenness of Rachel. And yet he says, God, that can't happen. I'm too old. And this is what I love about what the angel says. He says, well, it's going to happen. (laughs) Nothing you can do about that. But I'm going to silence you until it happens. Now, here's an important thing. The word that's used to say that they silence Zechariah can also be understood. And only could he not speak, but that he was made deaf. So he could not speak and he could not hear. The word silent there means that your life, this is one interpretation, and I've read a lot on this this week, because there are some strange things that happen in the rest of this story if he can hear. The understanding that I've come to is that when Angel said this to him, when he proclaimed it over him, what he meant is that his world would be silent, both hearing and speaking, until it was fulfilled. Scripture says that he walks out of his time, and the people are waiting outside for the guy that represented them to pray unto God about the salvation and deliverance of their nation. They're waiting for him to come out and it's delayed. And when he gets out, he can't speak. And obviously something has happened and the curiosity begins to spike. In good storytelling mode, we then move away from that story to another angel appearance. To a young girl who is waiting without any idea that her life's about to be upended. And God comes to her through the angel and says, you're about to have a child and the child will be Jesus. She visits her cousin. We talked about this last week. Elizabeth, whose child jumps inside of her belly. It's being fulfilled Mary sings about it, and then we move back to the story of Zechariah and John. And that's where I want to pick up with you in Scripture. Luke chapter 1, verse 57. 
We get this. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she had a son. I do think it's interesting, by the way, and I mentioned this on the beginning, that when we get to the book of Luke, who thoroughly researched his gospel, who wrote everything out in a very systematic way, when we get to the book of Luke, we are not told about the birth of Jesus first. We're told about the birth of John first, the forerunner. Verse 58, then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy and they rejoiced with her. They were excited. Verse 59, when they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day. So here's Zechariah. They have gone through the pregnancy. They have gone through the moment when she gives birth. And so you're nine, ten months at least from the announcement from Gabriel. Okay. You then wait another eight days to circumcise him. He's still not being able to communicate. He's probably not even here. He can't do any of that in this moment. And the eighth day come, they were going to name him, Zachariah, after his father. It was the father's responsibility in that moment to name the child. The problem was the father could not speak or perhaps could not hear even. And so the community's like, well, he's going to be Zach too. You name him after his father. That's what you do. You take the son. The son is named after the father. We make sure of that. We know there's no surprise here. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Now, let me just tell you that this is a place that the Bible kind of, kind of, not sugarcoats, but lessens the force of what's happened here. So Elizabeth interjects in the midst of this, which was a little bit out of place in this moment, a little bit out of context of what happened, and says, no, absolutely not. His name is John. She doesn't say, and here it says his name will be John. She says his name is John. Now here's the interesting thing about that. We don't know if there's been communication between them. We don't know if he's written this out for her. We're not given any of those kind of details, right? We're just told Zechariah went to the temple. God told him the name, told him what the child would be, would come. And then he was silenced for that moment. So we have any evidence that there's been any kind of correlation between these two. Now, they may have... Who knows how they could have communicated it with it. We, you know, they, their husband and wife, they've lived together. Imagine Elizabeth's living together for this long with her husband who can't speak or possibly hear. It's a new thing in their life, a new dynamic. We don't know if there's been communication or not. What we do know is she emphatically says his name is John. Now this is where the whole part about him hearing Makes a difference. If he heard that and then he writes it down, that's like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. That's it. If he at this moment is not hearing, if at this moment he has lost his hearing and he can't hear what she has said, when they come to him in verse 61 and they say to her, no, no, none of your relatives have that name. Nobody in your family's that name. Why would you name him John? That's the most ridiculous thing. Verse 63. So they motioned to his father to find out what they wanted him to be called. Another reason that probably he may not be able to hear. That otherwise they would have just asked him. But they use motions. In verse 63, he wrote on a tablet, his name is John. And they were amazed. Now here, here's why, again, these are details that Luke gives us. They wouldn't have been amazed if he would have just heard his wife say he's going to be named John, and then they write John. Although they would have been surprised, but not amazed. 
They would have been amazed if he can't hear, and she says, John, that's not in their family. They get his attention, and he writes, his name is John, that's not in their family. And they're like, how in the world did y'all come up with that name simultaneously without talking? Verse 64, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was set free, and he began to speak, praising God. I love that picture. His tongue was set free. Fear came on all those who lived around them and all the things were being talked about throughout the country of Judea. And all who heard about him took it to heart saying, What then will this child become? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. And then we get the song of Zechariah. Now the word prophesied here can be interpreted to understand that he sang it. It's written in a kind of lyrical manner. This particular one is called in Christian tradition the Benedictus because it starts with the word blessed. And it says his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. I'm just going to read the whole thing. I'm going to come back and talk about the three things that he praises God for in the midst of this that we can also praise God for. Verse 68, he says, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in the presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And then gives us a little note about John that he grew up He was in the wilderness until the day he appeared to Israel. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel. Three things that I see in this passage that he praises God for, that we can praise God for today, even in the midst of whatever circumstances you find yourself. And the first one is this. He praises God because God keeps his promises. We have a promise-making and promise-keeping God. Now, you remember the backdrop here. 400 years of silence. You can think about the entirety of the Old Testament when you have Adam and Eve in the garden who sin, and God says, I'm going to make it right. And for the next Eight chapters, we see man rise and fall and their sin begin to overtake them and the flood happens and the Tower of Babel. And eventually in chapter 12, God calls Abram out to be a nation that will bring glory to the name of God. And through that, through Abraham's family as it begins to build and build and through the exodus that happens and through all that goes on in Egypt and their salvation from that and through the kingdom that develops and David and Solomon and the branching off 
off of the kingdoms into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Throughout that entire time, God had someone, a leader, a prophet, someone who was speaking to the people regularly about, thus saith the Lord, this is the plan of God. This is what I've called you to do. And we get to the exile that happens in Babylon. They return back home. They rebuild the walls. They reinstitute worship. And then at the end of Malachi, the word of the Lord, the words from God, the prophets of God that we have that speak boldly for him, shut off. And for almost, not quite, twice as long as the United States of America has been a country, God doesn't speak to the nation of Israel. There's lots of stuff that happens in the middle of that. And there are people that sometimes claim to be prophets of God in the midst of that. They are captured by various groups and leaders of the world. They are passed from one world power to another. They are under subjugation. Their temple is defiled and degraded and destroyed in some ways that are different. They rebuild worship. They do what God has called them to do. And then he shuts off communication for 400 years. Several scholars have noted the difference or excuse me, the similarities between the nation of Israel and Zechariah and Elizabeth at this particular moment in their lives when the prophecy comes about John's birth. Just as Elizabeth was barren and felt like she was not able to provide life, the nation of Israel felt as if it was in a barren desert of hearing from the Lord. Just as Zachariah and Elizabeth had no doubt spent countless hours crying out to the Lord in prayer in request for a child to be born to them, the nation of Israel had been crying out for deliverance, particularly in this time from the Roman government that was overseeing them there. And what we see in this passage is that God's intervention on behalf of Zechariah and Elizabeth is also an intervention on the behalf of Israel. As a child is given to a barren wife, so a child is given to a barren nation that will prepare the way for the Savior. We have references to the promises of God in the Davidic covenant where God said in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David that there would always be someone on the throne of Israel. There would forever be a king. And as they're looking through, yes, they have rulers, yes, they have leaders, but they are not independent of themselves and they're wondering about that and what is, is God fulfilling it? Is God going to take care of it? And he says basically in this psalm that God is fulfilling his promise that there will come one who will rule. He uses the phrase horn of salvation. It's a picture of an ox or steer or an animal with a horn. And in their day and time, it was a signature of strength. There's this picture that happens that when an animal begins that has that has horns to get ready to attack or get ready to engage, that they will prepare their horns, they will lower their horns and begin to march. And there's this understanding from this passage that God is now bearing His horns, that it is time for Him to engage the world in a new and a different way. I don't know if you've ever been around animals with large horns. When I was 
uh, a kid, one of the biggest events every year in Dyer County was the Dyer County Fair. It always happened the week of Labor Day, and so we loved it at school because back then we didn't start school till like the week at the end of August. Do you all remember that back in those days? Some people didn't start till after Labor Day. Dyersburg, we were early. We started a little earlier than that. But we would go to school for two weeks, and then we would get Labor Day off, and the Friday after Labor Day off for Fair Day. We get, everybody went to the Dyer County Fair on Fair Day. And it was your typical local county fair with rides that none of us should have been riding and food that none of us should be eating. And they also had, you know, different things for you to see at different places you go at. You know, FFA would have stuff and 4-H would have stuff and you could go to all that. And one year in particular, for whatever reason, they had the world's largest steer. Max. Big Max. And I was walking near the tent of Big Max. Wasn't planning on going in to see Big Max when a reporter from the State Gazette. Y'all don't know about the State Gazette around here, but that was the daily paper of Dyersburg. Said, hey, we want to get a picture with a couple of kids on Max's back. Would you do that? And my mom said, sure. I did not. And they sat me on Big Max. And another kid that I, I don't remember who it was, but it's on the back. I've, we've still got, my mom clipped it, of course. We, I think we bought 822 papers that week. I'm not sure. Picture of me on the back of Mad Max. And here's what I want you to know. I would not want to deal with an animal that size with horns. It's the power that's involved in them. And when they were talking about it here, they didn't have good ways to deal with animals that had horns that went on a rampage. And what's happening here is Zechariah saying, our God is bringing in the line of David a promise of the fact that he is now engaging in a way that will be unstoppable. And then he says that not only is he fulfilling the Davidic covenant, the covenant he made with David, he's also fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant he made with Abraham. The one that came in Genesis chapter 12 where God says, I will make you a people and you won't be able to count them and I will give you a land and I will bless you and I will bless all that bless you and curse all that curse you and I will make you, through you, a blessing for all nations. And he says, God is fulfilling his promise. Here's what I want to just say to you. Wherever you are, what situation you're in, here's what I know. We have a God who likes and does and will make promises to us. And when he promises us something, he will fulfill it. The problem with the nation of Israel was never that God didn't keep his promises. The problem was that they did not keep theirs. And Zacharias says, praise be to God, because he is remembering his promises. The second reason he praises God is not only because he keeps his promises, but the second thing he's praising God for is he's praising him because he dispels the darkness. I love that picture at the end of the dawn will visit us from on high. This dawn comes from the ground up. That's not what he says is happening. He is saying that God on high is going to bring dawn in a moment. Through this 400 years of darkness, 
The picture literally is a caravan of people lost on their way who were overtaken by night. And it is a perpetual night that is happening. That they have been sitting in darkness. That they have been lethargic in their following of God because there has been no hope. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. There is nothing out there but darkness. Some of the older translations of this use the phrase the day spring, the spring of day, the sudden onset of daylight will happen. And God will bring about the light to give us direction, to show us our way and to tell us how to follow him. Over the last few months, just off and on, I've been rereading re-listening to and sometimes while driving in the car to the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And that thing that always around this time of year that strikes me is that description of what Narnia was before the kids entered when they said it's always winter and never Christmas. Man, I could not think of anything more depressing than that. Right? I mean, I love a little cold spell every now and then. It's been nice to walk out and not, you know, it's nice anytime when you've had a summer when it's, you walk out and your feet immediately are melting on the sidewalk to have some coolness. It's nice. Some, you know, would love some snow. But I cannot imagine living in a place where it's always winter. And the picture of Narnia is that it's always winter and never the hope of Christmas in the midst of it. And as the children begin their journey to what will eventually be the place where Narnia will be saved, one of those scenes in the books that I love is when things start to thaw. Winter is ending. Hope is on the horizon. Zechariah says, it's been 400 years of darkness. But from on high, dawn is coming. Light is invading. And God is about to show up in a way that he never has before to dispel the darkness of our lives. And then the last thing. So he praises him because he's a promise-keeping God. He praises him because he dispels the darkness. But this is the most important. He praises him because he brings salvation. For people desperately in need that they needed to be saved. He said salvation is coming. Verse 68 he says he will provide redemption for his people. That they will be bought back by the price that we know would be the death of the Son of God. And Jesus Christ will be bought back from our sin and the way that we have walked away from our Savior. We will be bought back by Him. The word redemption is an Old Testament word. It was a word used literally to buy back or to go and claim again or to re-buy something. Throughout this passage, there's this description of deliverance that will happen. That when we have been bound, when we have been shackled, when we have kept in prison, that we will be freed from that. 
He specifically mentions in here that our sins will be forgiven. And we know that when John the Baptist starts to preach, he starts to preach a baptism for the forgiveness of sins or for repentance that we want to be. But he says he's not the one that can do it, but one will come. In fact, when Jesus walks up, do you remember how John the Baptist introduces Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. That was embedded from the very first moment that Zechariah is speaking. He says that John will tell about the one who will go here and will give people the salvation that will come through the forgiveness of their sins. Then he talks about this promise that we will be able to serve him without any fear. What he means by that is that when Christ comes, when John, his son, prophesies and the next one comes, who is Jesus, and he dies on the cross and he saves us from our sins, that he believes, that he knows that what's going to happen there is it's going to bring an intimacy between us and the Lord, that we can understand him, that he can hear us, and that we can go directly to the Father. That we will no longer need a priest to walk into a room with incense and pray on behalf of the entire nation of people. That we will be able to come into the place and speak directly to the Lord. We will be able to boldly go before the throne of grace and bring our petitions to the Lord, lay them at his feet and know that a promise keeping God who dispels the darkness of our life and has saved us from our sins is hearing us as we pray. Salvation is deliverance from the bondage that our sin has us in, but it's deliverance to an intimacy with the Lord that we can only experience through Him. So when you think about your own life, what are the promises that God has kept to you in your life that you can be thankful for and praise Him for today? What is the area of your life that He has given you wisdom? What is the area of your life that He has given you clarity? What is the area of your life that He has shown you the way that you can give Him praise for today? And how can you praise Him today for the salvation that He has brought to you? At the same time, what is the promise of God that you need to cling to today even though you may not yet have seen it fulfilled in your life in the way you expect it? What in your life do you need today for him to dispel in order that you can see the light and see direction and see what is coming? And who of you today have not accepted the salvation that comes from him and would be willing to say, Lord, I am willing to just believe and receive the forgiveness of my sins that comes because you died on the cross for me? Would you take those things to the Lord? The promise you need to hold on to, the darkness that you need to spell, and the salvation that needs to come into your life. Will you take those things to the Lord? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are a God who is a promise keeper. And Lord, today we know that you have promised that you will take care of us. And while that may not be in the ways that we see or the ways that we know, we are thankful for the promise and the fact that you keep it. Lord, we're thankful that you are a promise keeper. 
That you promised to send your son so that we could experience salvation, Lord, and that you fulfilled that promise. And that you were still fulfilling the promise of saving people today around the world, even in this moment. We're thankful, Lord, that you are God who can dispel the darkness of our lives. Who can help us to see and know and understand the path that we should be on, the direction we should go, the clarity that we need. Lord, we're thankful that you are God who's provided salvation for us. We give praise and honor and glory to your name for the fact that when we were helpless and hopeless, you sent your Son. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. And may my life be a testimony to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.